Hello again, this is Session 7 of the 2022 WSE Spotlight, and we are doing something completely new, a pro-con debate on one specific topic. In this case, whether personalized interventions in sepsis are even possible. We have three excellent panelists, pro, con, and a balanced approach, and the session is moderated by the equally excellent Teresa Kortz from the University of California. Teresa, let's get this started. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Teresa Kortz. I'm a pediatric intensive care physician at the University of California, San Francisco. I study pediatric sepsis and severe febrile illness, and I will be moderating this exciting session. This is session seven of the 2022 World, World Sepsis Congress Spotlight, entitled ProCon, A Personalized Interventions in Sepsis Even Possible. This is a pro-con debate, so this session is organized slightly different from other sessions. We will start with a pro statement, followed by a con, and finally, we'll finish with a moderate perspective. All statements will be about 10 minutes in length, uh, which will leave us time for an interactive 20 to 30 minute uh, pro-con debate involving all three speakers at the end. Audience members, please submit your questions via the public audience chat. We will hold all questions until the speakers have had a chance to provide their statements, and then we'll address selected questions during the pro-con debate time. I have the esteemed pleasure and honor today of introducing our presenters, and I would like to start by introducing our first speaker, who will be delivering the pro statement of our personalized interventions and sepsis even possible, Dr. Mihai Natea. He's an infectious disease specialist and head of the Division of Experimental Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at Najmegan University and Medical Center. He studies the biology of sepsis and immunoparalysis and bacterial and fungal infections. Dr. Natea, we look forward to hearing your perspective. So I would like to present uh, uh, today a couple, of, uh, a couple of arguments why the use of biomarkers would be very important to translate information into medical intervention in sepsis. So if we look at how important sepsis is, we can see that the burden of sepsis has increased uh, significantly in the last years. And the pillars of sepsis as a therapy at this moment are anti antibiotics, and intensive care uh, treatment, basically. However, despite these very important, um, uh, important types of treatment, mortality is still unacceptable. So the question has been put in the last uh, couple of years whether a third pillar of, uh, of uh, treatment of sepsis, immunotherapy, can also have a role. Now, immunotherapy uh, has, been, has been applied in sepsis, and the concept behind, behind it was the fact that the host response during sepsis is dysregulated and the strong pro-inflammatory uh, response in sepsis leading to uh, stimulation and release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, activation of complement, activation of coagulations, um, and so on, has deleterious effect at systemic level. So at that point, people have tried to use um, uh, uh, anti-cytokine uh, treatment, anti-TLR4 tre treatment uh, in a lot of trials. But all these trials have been one-size-fits-all uh, approach. And all of them were unfortunately negative. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent in these trials without any positive, uh, uh, positive uh, results. And the question is why? And 
The argument that I want to, uh, to put out is the fact that the heterogeneity of the sepsis is very important, and we cannot treat all the patients in, in the same way, and the lack of patient stratification in these trials has been crucial. So to give the example of, uh, of the concept that we had in the 90s uh, and the beginning of the 2000s, that sepsis is induced by overreaction of, uh, of the host defense, a beautiful uh, study published uh, in, in JAMA in 2011 has shown actually that a lot of the components of the immune dysregulation in sepsis is in fact is in fact, you know, uh, are in fact immunoparalyzed. And for example, lymphocyte apoptosis uh, and deactivation uh, of the of the both lymphocytes and monocytes have a very important uh, component in the pathophysiology. So now we understand, in fact, that hyperinflammation and immune paralysis to relative opposites of the of the types of dysregulation of the immune response can happen in the same time or different uh, at different phases of sepsis or differently in, in different uh, patients. So in order to be able to, uh, to approach uh, immuno, uh, uh, immunotherapy in sepsis, we need actually to stratify the patients. Now, using biomarkers has already been shown uh, previously to be crucial for a proper treatment of sepsis. For example, antibiotic therapy, we also guided by the type of pathogen and the antibiotic resistance pattern. The intensive care-based uh, uh, therapy also uses biomarkers, only certain patients, for example, with hypotension or respiratory, uh, respiratory insufficiency and so on, will, uh, will receive certain types of, of treatment. So the use of biomarkers to translate them into medical intervention has been very successful for more than half a century. So why not using it also for, for the immunotherapy? For example, patients characterized mostly by hyperinflammation would benefit by downregulated the immune response, for example, with blockers of, of cytokines such as anakinra, R1 receptor antagonist, to give one example. Whereas patients with immunoparalysis would benefit for immunotherapy aimed to improve these responses, for example, with gamma interferon, and so on. So the use and the adjustment of immunotherapy would be crucial. Just to give a couple of examples to show the, uh, the importance and the success of patient stratification, this is, uh, this is a reanalysis re of, of a prior phase three trial in Anakinra published in Critical Care Medicine uh, uh, a couple of years ago in 2016, showing that patients in the patients with criteria of macrophage activation uh, syndrome, they would greatly benefit in terms of, of, of mortality if they are treated with Anakinra, but the other patients would not. And similarly, in the immunopathology of COVID-19 that we have shown in the last two years, in which IL-1, IL-6 pathway has been shown to be very important, but especially in the patients characterized by high, uh, high uh, inflammation, has been shown uh, to be successful. For example, the use of SUPAR for early pro uh, uh, prognosis of, of respiratory insufficiency, uh, as, as it has been shown in the beginning of pandemic, individuals with a, with a SUPAR higher than six nanogram uh, uh, per milliliter are 
advancing towards respiratory insufficiency. And this local lung edema is mediated by, by an L1 uh, uh, type therapy has led to the design of, of super stratification and super based immunotherapy with Anakindra in, in COVID-19 in the Save More trial that has been published uh, last year uh, in uh, Nature Medicine and which has shown that this subgroup of patients on the uh, on the uh, on the ward, which have a super higher than six nanogram per mi uh, uh, milliliter, greatly uh, greatly benefit for the treatment with anakindra. As you can see here, progression to severe disease or death is significantly decreased from thirteen point two percent to six point three percent. The mortality uh, was decreased and the likelihood uh, to recover. So, for example, uh, for sepsis, we would ha we have at, the, at this moment relatively easy criteria to characterize either hyperinflammation, the macrophage activation syndrome-like criteria, or immunoparalysis using HLA-DR expression or lymphocyte numbers or pro-inflammatory cytokine production, and that could lead basically to a personalization of the type of immunotherapy uh, uh, in sepsis that is much more likely uh, to be uh, successful and actually supervised or unsupervised classification in sepsis, either based on known uh, biomarkers in the fir ca first case or based on omics uh, unbiased classification of immune endotypes, I believe is the future of, uh, of successful immunotherapy in the patients with sepsis. So thank you very much. And this is what I would, uh, the point uh, I, uh, I would like to make today. Thank you very much. Wow, that was an, an incredible um, uh, presentation. So thank you for that. Um, I would now like to introduce Dr. Lorraine Ware, who will be delivering our con perspective. Dr. Ware is the Ralph and Lulu Owen Professor of Medicine and Professor of Pathology, Microbiology, and Immunology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Her research has used a comprehensive bench-to-bedside approach to investigate the pathogenesis of ARDS and sepsis-related organ dysfunction with the goal of developing new therapies. Dr. Ware, we look forward to hearing your viewpoint. Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today to deliver the con argument. It is impossible to transfer existing evidence to clinical routine in sepsis. So here's what we're hoping to achieve. The goal of personalized medicine in sepsis we all know that sepsis is highly heterogeneous. Um, and so our goal is really to use some type of diagnostic test that's shown by this prism here to identify subgroups of patients from this heterogeneous group of patients who are more homogeneous, potentially biologically more homogeneous so that we can apply specific therapies to these subgroups with the idea that we will then have success in treating patients with sepsis, particularly with pharmacologic therapies. And what I wanna to discuss today is that there are significant barriers to achieving this goal. And I'm going to go through the top six reasons that I think it's impossible, at least at the moment, to transfer existing evidence to clinical routine in sepsis. So I'm gonna start at the bottom of my list with reason number six, and that's that we already struggle even today to identify patients with sepsis 
rapidly and deliver timely therapy such as resuscitation and antibiotics. And so to take the next step and rapidly identify more homogeneous subgroups within the heterogeneous larger group of patients with sepsis is obviously going to be quite challenging. Reason number five is that at this point in time, I think that many of the sub-phenotyping strategies that have been developed and shown to identify more homogeneous subgroups within the greater sepsis population have not been well validated in independent cohorts. So there have been some studies that have identified uh, algorithms for identifying more homogeneous subtypes and then have validated in separate or subsets of the same population. But whether these algorithms are gonna work when applied to um, more heterogeneous patient populations that are perhaps geographically different, different in age, different in race and ethnicity, I think is a big unknown. So we still have questions about whether our phenotyping algorithms are generalizable. The fourth reason why I think we still are not ready to translate this to the bedside is that for the most part, identification of subphenotypes of sepsis has relied on complex modeling and on variables that are not readily measured at the bedside, such as transcriptomics. So this is just a sampling of some studies that have applied uh, transcriptomics to identify uh, subgroups within sepsis populations. And these studies have identified different groups. They've called them different things. But all of these studies relied on transcriptomics. And this is just a figure from the Mars Consortium study of sepsis that identified four different uh, subgroups of sepsis that were biologically different based on 140 gene uh, transcriptomic profiling. And so these transcriptomics were used to classify the patients into four different groups. And so this type of approach is really challenging to apply rapidly at the bedside in order to select a patient to give a particular therapy, which brings me to reason number three. And that is that even if only a few plasma biomarkers are needed to identify a subphenotype, at this point in time, rapid bedside tests are not readily available for most of the biomarkers that we might want to use for this purpose. So this graph shows data from a study by Carolyn Calfee in which she did latent class analysis, so an unbiased analysis of clinical and biomarker characteristics of patients with ARDS, and identified two different phenotypes within ARDS hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory. And the characteristics that segregated these patients are on the x-axis here. And if you look at the characteristics that are most different between these two subphenotypes, um, most of them are plasma biomarkers or easily observed clinical characteristics. So we have IL-6, IL-8, TNF receptor 1, PI-1, all higher in the hyperinflammatory group serum bicarbonate, protein C, and systolic blood pressure all lower in the hyperinflammatory group. 
And Pratik Sinha and her group went on to show that you can pretty reliably, uh, with uh, great confidence, identify these two phenotypes using three or four variable models. Uh, so a great simplification from the original analysis. And if we look at the variables that are in these models, they're listed here in the three biomarker iolate, protein C, and bicarbonate. The fourth, four biomarker model adds the use of vasopressors. But even though these models are very simple, we at this point in time really don't have point of care bedside rapid tests for iolate and protein C that would allow this to be implemented in real time. We have the technology available to develop these tests, but we're in a bit of a catch-22. The companies that develop diagnostic tests don't wanna develop them if there's not a clinical indication, but to do the trials to establish a clinical indication, we need the point of care tests. So um, we're a little bit stuck there. I think we are moving forward, but we are not ready to apply these uh, algorithms at the bedside. The number two reason uh, that we're not ready is that we don't understand the biology of these sepsis subphenotypes, particularly the transcriptomic phenotypes that I just shared with you. Um, our goal here is to identify a group and then target the biology with a specific medication uh, that's targeted for that patient group. And I think we're a long way from understanding the specific biology uh, to be able to target some of these subgroups that have been identified. And that brings me to my number one reason that we're not ready, and that is that we don't have prospective trials that show enhanced treatment effect in a sepsis subphenotype. So this is data, again, from Carolyn Calfee's group showing in a retrospective analysis of patients with ARDS from a trial of simvastatin that was overall negative, that that hyperinflammatory subphenotype did benefit from simvastatin, whereas the hypoinflammatory group did not, when you look at probability of survival. However, I want to emphasize that this is a retrospective analysis. What we don't have is prospective trials that have shown that rather than treating a whole group of patients, as shown on the left here, that if we could predict who's more likely to benefit from a treatment and then treat them with a drug that that group does better than a group that does not have that predictive enrichment characteristic. We're way behind the cancer field. This is a, a, a list of drugs that have been approved based on for targeting specific tumor genetics just in two years from 2019 to 2021. Why are we so far behind? Well, we don't have tissue from our patients to analyze. We don't have the luxury of time in sepsis to undertake this analysis. And we don't have intermediate endpoints that are reliable, such as uh, tumor size regression. Um, and so those are things that are holding us back. So here's my checklist. What do we need for personalized interventions in sepsis? Well, we need to identify subphenotypes. We've made some progress there. We need to validate them across different cohorts. This has been done, but could be done better. We need tools to rapidly identify the subphenotype. And I would argue that we're not there yet. We don't understand the biology. We don't have the therapies 
and we don't have prospective trials. So in conclusion, I do think that at this point in time, it's impossible to transfer existing evidence to clinical routine. But I want to emphasize that just because the evidence doesn't exist doesn't mean that we won't have it in the future. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dr. Ware. I really appreciate that talk uh, and also seeing some of Carolyn's um, data as well. Uh, so finally, uh, for our last viewpoint, which is the moderate viewpoint, um, Dr. Nula Meyer, who is an associate professor of medicine and the director of Center for Translational Lung Biology at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Her research program is focused on the molecular risk factors for acute respiratory distress syndrome and other forms of sepsis-associated organ failure. And she's also a critical care trialist, currently testing therapies for sepsis and ARDS, including COVID-19. Um, Dr. Meyer, we look forward to hearing your perspective. Okay. Um, so I think our crux here is as we approach our critically ill patient, should we take the approach of trying to have a very individual um, approach and think just specifically for my patient, what, what are the therapies or interventions that are most likely to benefit, least likely to harm? Or should we start by applying data that we've generated evidence from large populations where we know at least the general effect estimate? Um, and I think there is a tendency for all of us to emphasize the art of medicine and to think that we are always thinking on an individual basis. Um, and yet I would also stress that protocols have really um, had some tremendous successes in improving our sepsis care and reducing sepsis mortality. And I'll just highlight um, one very familiar to you, which is time to effective antibiotics. Um, it was um, nicely shown that with, it, with each hour of delay in appropriate antibiotics, that there was this linear reduction in survival. Um, and these data really prompted healthcare systems to rethink the process of both sepsis identification and process for delivering timely antibiotics. Um, and we have evidence to show that that time has really dramatically shortened. Um, so um, from one emergency room sepsis population by Dave Gajewski, the majority of patients who were critically ill with sepsis on presentation were receiving those in under two hours, and sepsis mortality has likewise decreased. At the same time, um, all of us are in this session because we suspect that there are certain therapies for which a precision approach will be, will be better. And this really comes down to feeling like there is um, differential biology, which we can start to identify. I'm going to highlight a couple of those gene expression um, changes. Um, and these were work done by Julian Knight's lab and Emma Davenport, where when they took whole blood gene expression, so this is largely the white blood cell gene expression, that's a dynamic um, uh, biological fluid that will change. When they took the most differentially expressed genes, you can start to appreciate from principal components that there seem to be two different populations, which they termed sepsis response signature or SRS1 and 2. And consistently, SRS1 in blue was associated with higher mortality and SRS2 with lower mortality. And importantly, you could not easily predict these gene expression profiles from clinical data alone, including the white blood cell differential or the severity of illness. 
And importantly, we're only starting to evaluate these in a retrospective fashion um, in the context of clinical trials. But here are some data from the VANISH trial, which randomized, um, it was a factorial design, but one of the arms was randomizing to steroids versus no steroids in shock. And on the subgroup in whom gene expression were available to test retrospectively, we observed a really dramatic difference of treatment effect from steroids. In the SRS1 group, um, again, these are the high mortality group, typically 30% or higher. We did not observe any effect of steroids. And strikingly, in the SRS2 group, which would normally be predicted to have a low mortality, the group randomized to hydrocortisone had a very strikingly high mortality at 42% compared to just 8% in those who were um, receiving placebo. Many limitations. This is very small. It's a subgroup analysis um, and small um, small populations may be at risk for extreme and unstable effect estimates. So the, the effect that we're estimating here may not be what we would see in a larger population, but certainly gives food for thought and adds to this um, uh, point that Dr. Ware was making that we really don't understand the biology underlying these gene expression profiles to know exactly why steroids would be so harmful in this group. Um, so as Dr. Ware mentioned, different cohorts have um, performed different clustering methods. And one of the limitations is that the different populations have come up with different clustering algorithms, sometimes two groups, sometimes three, sometimes four. What has been fairly consistent is that in the highest mortality group, so in this um, figure, the MARS-4 population, or SRS1, or in the Sweeney um, group, which actually analyzed all of the prior data sets, plus some, so 10 data sets in general, there are many shared elements in terms of the pathways that are dysregulated in this highest mortality group, which typically includes um, some degree of uh, immune paralysis, just like Dr. Natea mentioned, um, decreased, um, especially adaptive immunity, um, and some high um, inflammatory markers. Um, but how do we move from these dysregulated genes towards therapy? I think that really will be our challenge in this next half decade, um, where we try to understand, are there interve interventions that would move an inflammopathic gene expression back towards an adaptive one? And would that be associated with a favorable response? Um, and... Uh, with the coagulopathic, these are patients who, again, have a high mortality, less of a sign of inflammation, but lots of vascular activation. Is there a precision treatment for this coagulopathy or, or vascular activation that would improve outcomes? These need to be tested prospectively. What else might be on the horizon? So um, I think we are close to coming up with those point of care transcriptomics. Um, so again, Sweeney's group, um, the last gene expression signature I showed you with the three clusters that can be done with just 27 transcripts um, in a matter of hours, generally about two hours, um, now that there are these high throughput um, rapid diagnostics. His group has also um, identified and validated gene classifiers, both that um, have high discriminatory performance for 
distinguishing sterile inflammation from infection in a group that looks sepsis, septic on presentation. Um, and secondarily, with only seven transcripts, um, distinguishing the host response to bacterial infection compared to viral infection. And this is independent of the culture data. So as a clinician, you could imagine that maybe having these um, scores in addition to your clinical information might be helpful. Um, we need to reconcile this with our um, our goal of rapid antibiotic, rapid and appropriate antibiotic um, administration. So I do not think we'll be using these data to um, decide on when to initiate antibiotics. And if we did, we would probably be too late, but they might be helpful. You could imagine um, if a, an infection score was quite low, it might be give you extra confidence to stop antibiotics promptly. Um, and similarly, if infection score was high, but um, the viral infection score was high, again, maybe that would be what you needed um, extra evidence to stop antibiotics, even in a critically ill patient. How about plasma proteins? Um, so as mentioned by Dr. Rare, um, Carolyn Kelfi's group have nicely shown that in almost every population, both clinical trial and observational studies of um, ARDS patients, we can easily identify these two phenotypes that seem dominated by the plasma protein expression um, and have differential response to randomized therapies. Um, consonant with that, Chris Seymour's group have shown um, integrated both clinical and plasma protein um, data. And the delta phenotype is again dominated by high inflammatory proteins um, and a worse outcome. So does this mean we can target IL-6 or IL-8 or try to elevate protein C? Some of this will sound familiar. Um, we still have this gap in how do we use this data and translate towards therapies. And um, my group was especially um, I think learned this lesson that it's more complicated than we think. So we had generated strong data that uh, patients with a genetic variant that makes you more efficient at producing interleukin-1 receptor antagonist seemed somewhat protected from ARDS and from sepsis death. So we hypothesized that low plasma IL-1-RA patients might benefit from receiving exogenous IL-1-RA. And we had the opportunity to look back in the clinical trial that Dr. Natea highlighted um, and test for baseline plasma IL-1-RA and IL-1-beta um, levels. And we did find a statistical treatment interaction, but in the opposite direction than we anticipated. So recombinant IL-1-RA was beneficial in high plasma IL-1-RA patients. Um, we believe this is because IL-1-RA and IL-1-beta are strongly correlated, and so maybe IL-1-RA is just a better marker of IL-1 dysregulation. But I bring this up just as a cautionary tale that our understanding of the biology is incomplete, as Dr. Ware has mentioned. Um, and even with um, plasma, with therapies that seem very closely tied to a plasma marker, we would need to test these prospectively. Um, Dr. Ware nicely highlighted many of the barriers um, to precision uh, therapy. I think some of them we have solutions for. 
Others are harder. So um, the one that wasn't mentioned yet is that with sepsis, we are often looking at evoked phenotypes. So your genetic regulation of a marker like IL-6 or IL-1 beta might not be the same in the context of an acute inflammatory process as in um, ambulatory patients. And therefore, biobank data may not be as helpful as it is to other more chronic traits. So my, what would be my suggested pragmatic balance? I um, think we need to use the protocols that have shown effect for supportive care. Um, and uh, many of those will, um, uh, we still yet may find uh, treatment uh, heterogeneity um, that we should look out for, but many of these we think are low harm interventions. At the same time, we need to take active steps to advance precision medicine. So when it comes to clinical trials, we really must incorporate the biospecimens prospectively to collect those to be able to test whether there is treatment heterogeneity later. Um, and I think we also need to invest in observational molecular cohorts to keep doing this discovery work that may generate new potential pathways or biomarkers to target. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of our speakers as well. So I'd just like to take this opportunity to transition to our um, interactive debate. Um, we have a couple of questions in the chat. Please continue to put your questions there if you're part of the audience. And if there's a question for a particular speaker, if you could specify that as well. So I'd like to start with um, one question. It's actually for all three speakers. Um, and we'll start with Dr. Natea and, and work through in the order that we presented. Um, this is from Laura from Argentina. And her question is, how can the existing evidence be translated to low and middle income countries and, in, and specifically given that much of the evidence produced is from high income countries? Yes, I think this is, this is very relevant. And this also has, has relation to one of the major challenges that rightly, uh, there were rightly uh, uh, discussed by, uh, by Dr. Ware and Dr. Meyer. So for example, uh, transcriptomic uh, uh, transcriptomic um, um, uh, personalization of uh, treatment, identification of immunological endotypes based on on uh, transcriptome uh, 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 signatures. It is it is uh, it is pretty challenging. However, for example, for the not for the sake of the argument, I'm I'm convinced actually that we need to to take a step back. I, I fully agree that uh, uh, that translating into clinical practice the transcriptome signatures that we see and so on is still uh, is still very challenging. However, we have not tested yet some very easy and also for low and uh, middle income countries some relatively easy way of stratifying patients and approaching immunotherapy. And what I'm referring to, and I will give two examples. For example, uh, uh, the, the first example uh, we have uh, we have heard also from Dr. Meyer, and I presented also the retrospective analysis of the patients uh, from the Anakinra trial that has been done 20 years ago. From those retrospective trial, we know already for six years now that there are probably subgroups which are relatively easy to diagnose. Uh, for example, patients with hyperinflammation. And here we do not need, for example, transcriptome profile, but to assess a ferritin uh, assessment, which is available in the vast majority of the hospitals and, and liver function and, and uh, pancytopenia, for example, to diagnose a macrophage activation syndrome is already available. But despite of the fact that we have 
very tantalizing evidence from a retrospective uh, analysis of, of, of a trial that in patients with macrophage activation like syndrome, anakinra would help. We still have not done that trial yet, which should have been done already by now. We also know that, for example, and, and again, a very simple, uh, another example, we know for 20 years or even more, I think that first paper was in 96 published, that, that uh, H, low HLA-DR is associated with increased, uh, with increased uh, susceptibility to opportunistic infection, also higher mortality. It has also been shown for 20 years in a couple of, of, of small proof of principle trials in humans that gamma interferon, for example, improves and restores HLA-DR uh, expression. And we, and we also know that interferon gamma in patients with chronic granulomatose disease, CGD patients, prevents 80% of the, of the infections by improving the host response. And we still, in 20 years, have not done the prospective trial in which we identify patients with very low HLA-DR and we treat them in a personalized manner in those with low HLA-DR with, with interferon gamma. So I think that we are, we, we have failed as a, as a field, in my opinion, not in translating the very complex modeling based on transcriptome and other omics, but, but, uh, but performing the proper prospective trials in very simple uh, 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 patient stratification based on, 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 uh, on uh, biomarkers that we already have. Uh, a, a couple of simple biomarkers for macrophage activation syndrome, quantibrite or HLA-DR expression on the, on, on the monocytes for identification of, of, um, of uh, immunoparalysis, or for example, doing uh, recombinant IL-7 in patients with lymph, uh, lymphopenia, for example, which is also known a very clear, uh, a very clear criterion for, uh, for severity in sepsis. So in my opinion, and also in the middle and low income countries, before going in very complex uh, immunological and omics type uh, endotyping, we, we, are, we are owing to, the, to our patient to, very, to do very simple and clear-cut uh, prospective trials in which we do have both the biomarkers in the hospitals and the proper treatments that need to be tr treated. We don't know if they work, but we owe to the patients to do those prospective trials. Thank you very much, Dr. Ware. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'll just make two points. Um, the first point is that one of the things that um, the CALFI group, along with Pratik Sinha, um, is working on is trying to use um, machine learning methods to look at subphenotypes that have been identified by complex methods that couldn't be used at the bedside anywhere in the world, um, but to identify using machine learning clinical characteristic models that accomplish the same thing. And I think this is really promising because uh, if we could identify subsets of sepsis patients or ARDS patients using just clinical characteristics, but that reflect this biology that we are interested in, that that could be implemented really anywhere. Um, the second point I wanted to make is that the technology to measure these plasma protein biomarkers rapidly at the bedside already exists. Think about measuring a troponin or a BMP or something, a little point of care device. We have this technology. It's not expensive. It's pretty easy to implement, I think, 
globally and wouldn't be prohibitively expensive. What we need is for the technology to be adapted to the plasma biomarkers that are going to drive selection of patients. And that's where we just don't quite have enough data and quite enough impetus to get us to product development because we don't know exactly what we need yet. But I, I think that we will have the ability to do that in the future for protein biomarkers. The transcriptomics, I think, is going to be more complicated and more expensive and harder to globalize. Thank you for that. Dr. Meyer? I agree with everything that's been said, and I agree. What an excellent question. Um, I'm more optimistic about the transcriptomics. Um, it may not be run on um, at that time until we have better evidence, but um, the Pax gene tube is actually the easiest sample because you just set it and forget it. You, you don't need to freeze it right away. You don't need to spin it. So I think if we could, um, as a community, provide those right vacutainers to um, uh, lower income and middle income countries, we could then collect it and run it um, um, separately. But I think you also raised that um, we need better um, better diversity of subjects, um, both on the observational side and then especially when it's time to test these interventions and see if the same, you know, there is diversity by ancestry, by exposure, environmental exposure, um, by context of care and the, the types of um, care that are delivered. And so I, I think we need better representation within these observational cohorts and then better representation, especially for the trials when we try to validate them. Thank you. There's a, this is actually a follow-up question from Laura um, for you, Dr. Meyer, and um, specifically about the biology of sepsis populations. And do you think that in including um, populations from low-income countries, low-middle-income countries, that that might actually expand the heterogeneity of the pool that we're um, discussing? Um, oh, go ahead. Noah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, because again, I think not just in ancestral and exposure. Um, exposures might be totally different um, in this context of care. So um, I expect, though, that we'll actually see a lot of similarities. Um, and it's only as we put all these information together, these large data sets, that we can try to understand which is more important. Um, but uh, so far, we have not seen at least ancestry genetic ancestry to be a big determinant of these sepsis host response subclasses. Very interesting. Dr. Weir, did you have a comment as well? Oh, yeah, I was just going to add um, along, along the same lines of increased heterogeneity that um, there's likely also to be greater heter heterogeneity of pathogens, which may introduce a whole other dimension in terms of uh, host pathogen interaction and host response that's just not captured in the current data sets that we've been studying. So I, I, I totally agree with Dr. Meyer uh, that, and with Laura, who asked the question, that it definitely will introduce heterogeneity. That was actually one of my questions for the group, for whoever would like to take it. It seems like a lot of the focus to date, um, or at least the research presented, is very focused on the host response. And how important do we think the pathogen, given that it's really a spectrum of disease and it's this host pathogen relationship, so how important is the specific pathogen 
um, in this relationship as well? And do we feel like we have the right cohorts and trials to really be able to answer that? That's a very important point. Of course, uh, in terms of the pathogen, we are already very successfully attacking it. Let's put it this way: uh, in the way that we do it, uh, that we do it at this moment with uh, with antibiotics. Of course, there is also scope, actually, probably for additional approaches. We see, if if we look back now uh, at the immunotherapy in severe acute infections, I think that the that there will be always a period before COVID and after COVID, because actually during COVID, for the first time, we actually have several major trials of immunotherapy, which have been successful. And there have been successful, I'm thinking of dexamethasone, I'm thinking of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, tocilizumab and sarilumab, I'm thinking of JAK inhibitors, and I'm thinking of Nanakinra, the AL1 receptor antagonist. And for the first time, we actually are able to demonstrate that is the case. At the same time, we have an, a, an additional very important, uh, very important uh, uh, immunotherapy, basically, which is passive immunotherapy, which were monoclonal antibodies against the virus, which were also successful. And they have also been shown to be successful based on uh, on uh, on patient stratification based especially on whether the patients had or did not have uh, positive serology for uh, for covid-19 for those uh, for those patients who already had uh, good uh, good antibody titers it seems that and uh, uh, monoclonal antibody treatment were not successful whereas those uh, um, um, uh, who do, did not have the, the positive serology had an absolute benefit. Another example of, of successful patient stratification. And this approach, uh, we should not forget, before the time of antibiotics, actually passive immunization with, with polyclonal antibodies uh, from horses actually was the most successful therapy of, of infections before. But but. We forgot that because of the antibiotics, but the mortality due to uh, uh, pneumonia, for example, was reduced with 30, 40 percent in, in, in the 30s and 40s of the, uh, of the previous century with immunotherapy. So I do think that, that we will have maybe in the future also approaches uh, to, to target both, uh, both uh, the, the pathogen with antibiotics on the one hand and also with, uh, with uh, uh, blocking antibodies, for example, or inhibitors and so on. And on the other hand, uh, re, uh, uh, re, uh, rebalancing the immune system what we have discussed until now. And, and for that, we do need, I do think we need uh, to, uh, to stratify the patients based on the host uh, response uh, uh, situation. Thank you. That was actually response to um, one of the questions. We've had a couple in the chat about COVID and one of which to paraphrase was essentially in seeing that we've been able to use a panel of biomarkers to help um, provide appropriate immune modulation, immunotherapy and COVID. Does that essentially give us hope uh, that we could do something similar for sepsis in the future. Absolutely, I, I fully agree. I think that also the attitude towards uh, towards immunotherapy and towards uh, using uh, biomarkers will be very different after the COVID because of the successes that were uh, successes that were uh, that were uh, built. And and for example, a very a very simple way in which we should actually, and I hope that. Uh, that uh, that the success in COVID will be followed up by similar studies in influenza because there are a lot of similarity, for example, uh, in influenza in influenza pneumonitis, which which very closely actually 
uh, mimics some of the features in uh, in COVID, and we should do uh, similar things. And of course, uh, in more general, in sepsis. Thank you. This next question is about steroids and um, response to steroids, given the different endo and um, phenotypes that we see, I think both in ARDS and sepsis. So essentially to paraphrase the question, if a patient um, appears not to respond well to steroids, for example, in septic shock, should steroids also be avoided if we think that there's um, a COVID-19 co-infection or if um, ARDS? So for example, if hydrocortisone doesn't work for septic shock, does that mean that dexamethasone won't work for COVID-19? I think Dr. Natea, would you like to answer first? Well, I'm, I'm, I always think that, that and, and I think Dr. Meyer also said that, and Dr. Ware also. In the end, I do think to be able to, the, the pathophysiology of sepsis, of ARDS and so on, is so complex that we won't know anything until we do the proper trials. So I think that, uh, that, uh, that it, is, it is okay to speculate basically, but I truly don't think that we, uh, we can draw the conclusion before we do the proper trials. And I think that if we have a reasonable, if we have a reasonable uh, hypothesis for, uh, for something, I do think, I do think that we, uh, we, we should try it. Of course, if the, if the, uh, the uh, the hypothesis should always be positive. So if have the if we have the hypothesis, this is likely to help. That trial should be done. But of course, if the hypothesis is negative, this is likely not to help. We should we should avoid that uh, the trial. I think because it is dangerous. I mean, you can never do a a, a trial that that is supposed to uh, to uh, to uh, to validate a negative hypothesis. I think that this should not be done because then the likelihood is that we do we should always do the trials that are likely to help the patients, not those who are unlikely to do that. I agree. I I um, I think COVID taught us so much. Um, it showed us that there's tremendous heterogeneity even when the pathogen is, you know, largely uniform. Um, it showed us that modulating the host response, even when we didn't have very strong antimicrobial treatment, you know, we, we did have remdesivir, remdesivir does help, um, but we recognized that there was heterogeneous use of, of remdesivir and we still saw effects for modulating the host response kind of independent of uh, modulating the infection. And we saw that uh, tissue damage can be can be driven somewhat um, temporally distinct from the acute infection. And I think that's the part that's hardest to reconcile with bacterial infection. So I, I don't think we know, I think we suspect there are some patients in um, that we care for with bacterial sepsis where we think we get source control quickly, and yet we do not reverse organ failure. So um, maybe the same process is happening, but I don't think we have the same level of evidence. Um, but COVID has shown us what we're capable of, of um, accomplishing from, a, from an observational um, standpoint. I think uh, COVID has also taught us that there may be bigger differences between the steroids than we traditionally thought. So to the speaker's question that, um, that you know, should we translate hydrocortisone findings to dexamethasone? Maybe not. Maybe there are differences, but, um, but I, I don't know that for certain. Um, but, 
but there may be more heterogeneity. And then I would definitely caution the, um, the subgroup analysis of Vanish while striking. Um, I think that probably is still premature to change any therapy. So it was retrospective. It's very small. So that subgroup of high mortality is in just 50 55 subjects. Um, so that does not rise to the level of changing therapy in my mind. Yeah, I'll just make one additional comment about that question, which I think is such a good one. And that is that although we're talking about personalized medicine, it, we're, we are not talking about N of one medicine. So all the evidence that we're going to have, even if we manage to get perspective trials of personalized personalized therapies is going to be evidence from groups of patients. And we're still going to need at the bedside to balance potential risk versus potential benefits and weigh the equation for our individual patient and monitor response to therapy. Um, and that's going to be true for steroids, uh, for other immunomodulation um, and other therapies. We're never going to have perfect evidence for the patient who's sitting in front of us. Uh, they're always going to be an individual. So there, there's always going to be that challenge, even as we move this field forward. Well, thank you all for your thoughtful response. I think we have time for um, one more question. And I like to always end on kind of a hopeful, positive note in terms of where do we go next and where do we go from here? And so I think, you know, Dr. Meyer, you did this on one of your last slides, but I'd like to go through the speakers again and hear what your top research priorities, if you could list the three of them so that the audience can go forward and, and focus on that and have, have a sense of what, it, what you think is required to push this field to the next level and really take um, personalized medicine and sepsis to the point where we hope it will be someday. Dr. Nathaniel? So from my point of view is, is returning back actually to, uh, to some, uh, some easy way of, uh, some easy way of uh, uh, patient stratification. Uh, that we should uh, we should truly uh, test in the coming years. Actually, there is uh, there is an ongoing phase three trial in Europe that is testing uh, uh, anakindra and recombinant interferon gamma uh, therapy based on patient stratification, and that should be uh, hopefully finished at the end of uh, next year. So we will know whether they help or not. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that there are similar intentions to uh, to perform uh, a clinical trial in the United States with recombinant interleukin-7 for patients with immunoparalysis and lymphopenia. And I think from my point of view, these are three treatments that are available that are tantalizing information that they might help. And I think, and I think that they uh, should, uh, should be tried. And then the last thing, well, this is the fourth then, but maybe I'm allowed to say that also very quickly, is to try indeed to learn as much uh, from COVID-19 and to see what, for me, before COVID, I would have said anti-AL1 or anti-AL6 therapy will probably be the same and probably anti-AL1 would be better than anti-AL6. What we learned from COVID is that it seems that anti-AL6 have also effects that are probably independent than, uh, than the AL1 pathway and that might be different. And I think that learning what that means for sepsis would be also very important in the, in the coming period. Thank you. Dr. Ware? I really just want to make one point 
in response to this question. I think we're at a very unique time in history. Prior to the COVID pandemic, the enthusiasm on the part of pharmaceutical companies for engaging in drug development and clinical trials in the sepsis, critical illness, ARDS space was extremely low. Um, I think what COVID has shown us is that we can have success with therapies in this space. We can uh, design trials, we can implement them rapidly and get answers. And I think we have a unique opportunity now to capitalize on the success that we've had to move forward in non-COVID critical illness, to design and implement clinical trials of many of the exciting agents that we've been talking about this hour, to combine those trials with collecting the right biospecimens so we can try and look for heterogeneity of treatment effects based on these phenotypes that that we've already identified and on phenotypes that we're going to identify in the future and uh, really move this field forward if we kind of ride this wave of enthusiasm. Thank you. I share your optimism. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Meyer. I would just extend that, that um, capturing this moment to engage the patient population as well and trying to uh, shift the mind frame from um, someone who does trials and observational research, um, many, many families use as their reason not to participate the fact that he or she is so critically ill. And could we not wait until they were less ill? And I think we need to to highlight that it's precisely because they are so critically ill that every patient should be given the opportunity to participate in making our sepsis care better Um, and trying to shift this mindset. I always say cancer patients go to their um, cancer physician expecting to be offered research and we need to shift the mind frame so it's the same for sepsis patients. That's an excellent point and definitely a frame shift in the way that we would provide care. Well, thank you all. And I'd like to thank everyone who attended the session. There were several very good questions in the chat that we just didn't have time to get to, but thank you all for attending and a warm thank you to the Congress sponsors and as well to the speakers here today. I echo many of the words that were said in the chat as well. Fantastic um, presentations, really thought provoking and an excellent discussion. Um, And without you, this spotlight wouldn't be possible. So thank you so much for your time. Um, And then finally, um, you could please consider visiting the World Sepsis Congress website to learn more, to become engaged and active. Um, You can sign the World Sepsis Declaration. You can also follow the World Sepsis Congress on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And thank you all for your time and hope to see you at other sessions. Bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the 2022 World Sepsis Congress Spotlight possible. The final session, Session 8, will be available next Tuesday on June 21st. Until then, have a great rest of the week.